Well, now we get to worship God for repairing His Word. We, get to, we have the privilege of studying the Bible together. And as I said, it came in, in the bulletin. In the insert there, it says what we'll be studying together. And I've been praying for a couple of months, actually, asking God, give me wisdom about what what we would be talking about, what we should be teaching, what, what our church should have to hear. And I thought, well, it's a brand new church that God is starting, church plant, which is how every church throughout history starts. It starts as a church plant. But what do we need to hear? So two books clearly came into my mind very easily. I thought, I thought of the book of Acts and I thought of the book of Ephesians because when you're starting on a new church, you want to do church the right way. You want to do church the way God wants you to do church. And that brings you to the book of Acts because in the book of Acts, you have the New Testament church doing church God's way. So Acts describes how they did church in the early days of the New Testament. And then the book of Ephesians is a little different because it doesn't show you how to do church. It tells you how to do church the right way. So then my heart kept leaning towards, we need to do a book, uh, study of the book of Ephesians together as a congregation, a new congregation, because in the book of Ephesians in six chapters, in the most uh, definitive way, God tells His people how He wants them to do church. He describes there what he expects of a New Testament church. So we need to hear that message. And so, looking forward to doing a study through the whole book of Ephesians. And we're starting today in the first three verses of the book of Ephesians. And so, it's an exciting book. It's one of my favorite books. Uh, It's a a book of many blessings, as we're all going to find out together. I'll never forget, about 20 years ago, when I was a freshman in college, I believe I was a freshman, no, I was a sophomore. I was a new Christian, just got saved, didn't grow up studying the Bible. But I've been reading the Bible recently, and I was a sophomore in college, and just got saved, and I had a roommate that was a Christian. He grew up his entire life in a very godly Christian home. He grew up reading the Bible from the time he was about yay high. Yay high. So now he was 19, 20 years old, knew the Bible inside and out, was an excellent student as well, and a Bible major. And so he knew the New Testament inside and out, and I just was in awe of him, and he was my roommate and best friend. And I just remember one time when he came in the dorm room, and he was... He was tired, he was drained, he was bummed, he was disappointed, he was even a little depressed, and it was towards finals, and some girl just turned him down on the date, and every other conceivable misery in his life was coming his way as a college student. And he just came in, and I could tell he was he was grumpy, he was tired, he was depressed, he was distressed. Uh, then he just plopped down in our dorm room on the couch, took out his Bible, and he says, Cliff, I need some grace in my life, I need some encouragement, I'm going to read the book of Ephesians. Now, I didn't know the New Testament that well. I, I didn't really know Ephesians. I was new to this idea of Bible study. And I was just never forget. That was like 20 years ago, and I'd never forget that moment when he said that. I need some encouragement and grace in my life. I'm going to read the book of Ephesians. Like, wow. What is the secret in, the, in Ephesians? It made me hungry to know what is in that book of six chapters. Well, it's a book full of grace and promises and blessings that God... Promises to give to the Christian to encourage their heart. And so that's what we're going to see corporately as we study this book. This great book of riches and encouragement to every Christian and to every church. This summer we did a few little vacations, a mini vacation. One of them was to the Hearst Castle, about two hours south of here I think it is. Anybody ever been to the Hearst Castle or heard of it? Can you imagine? Yeah, most of you. So it's about within three hours of this area. William Randolph Hearst in the early 1900s up to the mid-20th century. Very rich, wealthy guy, uh, newspaper mogul, amassed all kinds of wealth because of his career, and primarily because of his parents who were extremely wealthy. When they died, they gave him an inconceivable amount of inheritance, and his 
freedom to spend it. And so he built these mansions all over the country. Uh, one of the nicest, biggest, uh, most luxurious one is just right here two hours away. So we took the family on, and now it's like a museum on the top of the hill down there called Paso Robles. And so we went there and took the tour of the uh, Hearst Castle. It's just this huge, massive, mammoth, old mansion with all kinds of uh, property, and it used to have an animal zoo on the property and everything else. And so we went around the property. And one thing that William Randolph Hearst uh, had a lust for was expensive and rare art all from around the world. And he literally paid and commissioned people to traverse the ends of the earth to collect precious collectibles and uh, portraits and pictures and vases that were worth thousands and thousands of dollars. And so he became known as a connoisseur of rare and precious art. And so many of these rare pieces of art were all over his mansion as we went through the tour at the Hearst Castle this summer. And uh, so he spent his entire life doing that, collecting valuable, expensive pieces of art. There's all kinds of weird and kooky stories about William Randolph Hearst. He was a strange fellow because he was uh, an eccentric fellow at that and somewhat to himself in his private life. Uh, but one of the interesting stories was is that he found out and had heard about this very expensive piece of art that he wanted so desperately to be his very own. So he commissioned several of his people to go and travel the world at uh, count, not counting the cost whatsoever because he wanted that rare piece of art and so they did. Uh, they were following the orders of their boss and so they traveled the world and I don't know where they went to Europe and everywhere else to try to find this very rare piece of art and apparently they spent a long time, months and months and months, couldn't find it because usually they came up with the art piece that he wanted because he had the cash to pay for it. So finally they were frustrated. went back to uh, and then uh, somebody had dawned on somebody that, hey, uh, maybe uh, there is a location where we can find maybe this piece of art that we haven't been able to found, find anywhere else. And so they did. And so they actually ended up finding this rare piece of art. And so they went and they told uh, William Randolph Hearst, and they were delighted. The good news, there was good news and there was bad news, uh, Mr. Hearst. The good news is we were able to find this rare piece of art. The bad news is it was in the basement of your own uh, palace or mansion. And you have owned this for years now, and it was just packed away and you didn't even know that you already had it. Uh, so he was quite embarrassed and wasted a lot of money trying to find something that he already owned and possessed in his own vicinity. Uh, but that's a silly, funny illustration of what a lot of Christians are like. When you became a Christian, God endowed upon you and upon me unbelievable riches that we have in Christ because of Christ. The Bible is going to say every conceivable spiritual blessing belongs to us. But many Christians throughout their life, they don't even realize what these blessings are that are at their very own disposal. They have inexhaustible eternal riches at their very fingertips. And many times Christians are just ignorant of the fact that, number one, those riches belong to them. And number two, they're ignorant of how to appropriate those riches in their own life. And Ephesians is a storehouse of riches from God that's going to open our eyes to see how rich we are in Christ. I don't know, when you came in this morning... Uh, if it dawned on you that you are rich. If you're a Christian, you're rich. Did you know that you're rich? Some of you may be thinking, oh, I'm not rich at all. You haven't seen my house. You haven't seen my book, uh, bank account, so on and so forth. But if you're a Christian this afternoon, you are rich. That's the promise of the Bible. That's the theme of Ephesians. What do you mean I'm rich if I'm a Christian? Well, every Christian is rich. Not in terms of material possessions, necessarily. Rather, Christians are rich in a greater way. They're rich in spiritual privileges. The book of Ephesians delineates a treasure house of God's blessings endowed to every believer, regardless of your age, regardless of how long you've been a Christian. You've been endowed. Every believer based on their personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I became rich 20 years ago when I put my faith in Christ. I became a millionaire. No, a zillionaire. No, a gazillionaire in Christ when I got saved. 
So today we begin to examine the inexhaustible spiritual riches that have been entrusted to us as Christians for God's, for our good and for God's glory. So let's go ahead and look at Ephesians. We're going to start right at the beginning, chapter 1. Today we're only going to get through the first three verses. Next week we're going to go down to about verse 15 as we're going to try to glean together the riches from this great epistle, the book of Ephesians, and apply it to our life. And based on verses 1 to 3, I just have three basic truths that I want you to be aware of today regarding the riches that you possess if you are a Christian this morning. Or this afternoon, sorry. So let me give you the three points and then we'll talk about it. Regarding these riches, there's the courier of our riches. That's the Apostle Paul, that's verse 1. The courier is the guy who dispensed this great truth to us. He was the carrier, the bearer of God's good news about how rich we are. Number two is the cause for our riches. How did we get so rich? The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ, that's verse 2. He made us rich. If you're a Christian. And then finally, number three, well, what are these riches that we're talking about? If I'm rich, I want to know what my riches are. The content of our riches is every spiritual blessing. That's verse three. So let's look at these great riches we have in Christ. And let's read verse one through three together. Paul, I'm reading from the New American Standard this afternoon. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Point number one regarding our riches is the courier of our riches, and that is the Apostle Paul. And that's verse one. It's important to understand why we're going to even why even bother reading Ephesians, some document that was written two thousand years ago, as opposed to can we get something more modern to read and study together? Like the San Francisco Chronicle. Why, why, can we study that together? Or maybe some other religious book out there that wasn't written so long ago. Or how about the Kabbalah? That's a religious book. Why don't we study that together? So this first point has answers the importance of that question. Why are we bothering to study out of the Bible, out of the New Testament, and out of a, a letter or an epistle written 2,000 years ago by a guy named Paul? Well, there's a very important answer to that. Because of who Paul was and why he was called and commissioned to write is why we study what Paul wrote. Because Paul is bringing us the very words of God himself, the mind of God. Scripture is the very mind of God. That's why we're studying it. The Apostle Paul. Uh, very famous, probably the most famous Christian throughout history. Sometimes there are uh, facts that people mess up regarding the Apostle Paul. But he, he was Jewish. Uh, originally he was not a believer or a Christian. Originally actually he was uh, an enemy to the early Christian church. He grew up as a religious leader in the Jewish religion, known as a Pharisee. That was the elite of the elite of the religious guys in the Jewish religion. And he elevated himself by his religious diligence. He was a legalist. Uh, and then when the church began and came into existence, the Apostle Paul was the number, at that time his name was Saul. He hated the Christian church. He hated Jesus. He hated the apostles. He hated the New Testament of believers. And so he made it his cause to persecute and torture, even arrest the early Christians. And then uh, the Lord Jesus Christ had enough of that and confronted the Apostle Paul literally on the Damascus Road. And the Lord Jesus confronted Paul and caused him to go blind. And Jesus asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me by persecuting my believers? And it was in that moment, or during that time, for that occasion of going blind and being confronted by Jesus himself from heaven, that Saul, Christian hater, became Paul, the number one greatest Christian of all time. The Apostle Paul got saved through a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
The Apostle Paul is known as the 13th Apostle. There were 12 that Jesus trained for three years personally. And then after Jesus died and rose again from the heaven, uh, rose again into heaven, he called the Apostle Paul to be the 13th Apostle. And he was a unique apostle. Um, the other 12 apostles were apostles to the Jewish community primarily. And then the Apostle Paul, he was the apostle to the Gentile world. Kind of like most of us here. I'm a Gentile, I'm non-Jewish. Thank God for the Apostle Paul. It was through Paul, the Gentiles got to know the truth about Jesus Christ. Some people confuse the word apostle and disciple. Disciple just simply means a student, someone who's willing to learn. So there are all kinds of disciples. Good disciples, bad disciples, ugly disciples. But a disciple just means a student, that's all. And then apostle means sent one. It's a little more narrow term, more formal. And the apostle Paul was a sent one. He's an apostle. An apostle was a literally a formal ambassador, a representative of a greater authority. And so the Lord Jesus chose 13 men to be his apostles, to represent him during his day, during the time of the early church, to do his bidding and to speak with full authority. So when these 13 apostles went out, Peter and the others, the apostle Paul, they spoke with the very authority of Jesus Christ, which means they spoke with the very authority of God himself. And the New Testament lays down qualifications of who these apostles were to be. You had to be qualified to be an apostle. Acts chapter 1 tells us some of those qualifications. Because when Judas, one of the apostles, who was a false apostle, killed himself, they had to replace him with another apostle. And Peter said, there are qualifications to being an apostle. One of the qualifications of being an apostle is you had to be one of those guys who lived during the time of Jesus and watched Jesus' ministry firsthand. That was a qualification. You had to be alive during Jesus' day. So are there apostles today? No, because there's nobody qualified. Nobody was around during the time of Jesus' day in John the Baptist. Acts chapter 1 says there was another qualification to be an apostle. You had to be a witness of the resurrected Jesus Christ. So the twelve apostles, they saw Jesus rise again from the dead, therefore they were qualified to be an apostle. The apostle Paul saw the resurrected Jesus Christ because the Bible says that Jesus appeared to the apostle Paul several times. Personally. From heaven. And then finally, you were qualified to be an apostle if you were commissioned personally by Christ to be your apostle. And Jesus only chose 13 men to be his apostles. And the apostle Paul was personally selected by Jesus himself to be his apostle, to speak for him, to write the scriptures, and to speak on behalf of God. So that's what the apostle Paul did. The apostle Paul, he ended up writing 13 letters. There are, 13, there are 27 books in your New Testament. 13 were written by Paul as an apostle. It's amazing. Uh, and apostles were called to preach the gospel, to teach and pray. Uh, one of the jobs of the apostles was to start the church. Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostles laid the foundation of the church. That was their job. The foundation was laid. It didn't need to be laid again throughout history. The apostles also had the ability to do miracles according to 2 Corinthians 12.12. 12. Did you know there are people going around today saying they are apostles? There are. I'd like to say, well, so Jesus personally called and commissioned you, and apparently you can do miracles, and you speak divine revelation, and you can write scripture, and you're part of laying the foundation of the church? I don't think so. That's what the New Testament says are the qualifications of an apostle. Uh, and one of the most important duties that the apostles had in their associates was writing down scripture called doctrine and saving it for the history of the church so that we have it today. These 27 books of the New Testament is what is called the Apostles' Doctrine. It is what the church is supposed to study, learn, teach, preach, and implement in their local congregation and abroad. So that is why we study the book of Ephesians, because it came from the Apostle Paul, which means it came from Jesus himself and God himself. This is what God wants us to study, his divine scripture, the Apostle Paul, very important. 
So Paul makes a fact, letting those Christians know that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, called personally by Jesus. And also, Paul talks about his authority to give us these wonderful riches, because he says he was an apostle called by the will of God, that phrase says in verse 1. Paul's an apostle by the will of God. That means God was the one who determined and called Paul to be an apostle. It wasn't by majority vote. It wasn't out of popularity. It wasn't based on Paul's human credentials or his wisdom or his training. He was made an apostle by the will of God. And then Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, Paul tells us that he got supernatural, divine, heavenly revelation straight from Jesus and straight from God, straight from heaven, and that no man taught it to him. And he wrote it down. So this truth from Ephesians, Paul didn't learn in a school or from any human man. It is divine revelation. That's what Paul said. That's what it means that he was an apostle by the will of God. And because Paul spoke authoritatively as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is therefore binding and authoritative for us. And it is also relevant for us as a church. So that's why we study the scriptures. Because we have an apostle who has entrusted these truths to us. So that is the courier of our great riches, the Apostle Paul. Now, look at uh, verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, I said that Paul wrote 13 books in the New Testament. This book, out of his 13 books, is unique, Ephesians. Because in the earliest manuscripts, see that phrase right there in your Bible that says, to the saints at Ephesus? Many times there's that city that is designated who Paul was writing to. Paul wrote 13 letters and he'd say, to the saints in Corinth, to the Christians in Philippi, or to Timothy, or to Titus. Here he says, it says, at Ephesus. Many of the earliest manuscripts don't have the word at Ephesus there. Many early manuscripts just have it blank there. It just says, to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Bible scholars believe that's because this was written as a cyclical letter. Not as a letter written to an individual church or an individual person like the epistle to Timothy. But the intention of this letter was, Paul wrote it probably to the church at Ephesus. He wanted the church at Ephesus to read it, to copy it, to devour it, to apply it to their local congregation. And then he wanted them to pass it on to the next church. Colossians, at the end of the book of Colossians, it makes references to these cyclical letters that Paul wrote that he wanted passed around. So Ephesians is... The cyclical book, the one that was to be passed around of all the epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote. It was uh, an epistle and letter written for all of these churches in Asia Minor where Ephesus was. So that's very important. So, and that kind of describes the nature of what we're going to learn in this book. And because this book, the, the epistle of Ephesians, was intended for all of the churches, it deals with generic, universal truths that apply to every church. And not just churches in the days when the Apostle Paul lived, but also churches all throughout history. So 2,000 years later... This book is filled with all kinds of truths that are going to apply to us as a church and also as individual people because it deals with generic, general truths that are important to us. Think about the things in your life that are important. Uh, what are the most important things in your life right now? Could it be salvation? Issues of salvation? Who Jesus is? What about marriage? Is that kind of important to some of you? What about raising children? Dealing with finances? Learning how to communicate? How to deal with authority? How to use your spiritual gifts. These are all issues specifically dealt with and mentioned in the book of Ephesians at length. These are generic general truths that apply universally to every Christian and to every local church. So we have the privilege to study all these great truths as we go through the book of Ephesians and apply them to our life.
at Ephesus. The city of Ephesus there, and that's where this letter originally went. In the days of Paul, it was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor. And Asia Minor today is Turkey, over there in the Middle East. The Apostle Paul came through Ephesus a couple of times, but on his third missionary journey, he stopped. And he ended up staying there for almost three years. And the book of Acts says the Apostle Paul went all throughout Asia, everywhere, for almost a period of three years, preaching the gospel, teaching, talking to people about Jesus, door to door, house to house, so that at the end of three years, everybody who was in Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. That's an amazing statement. That's Acts chapter 19, verse 10. One guy in the influence of his ministry impacted an entire geographical location. One man. Just think if we could take the 30 or 50 of us here and have that kind of impact just within a two-mile radius of where we are would be mind-boggling and would be out of the ordinary for what typical churches do today. But that's what the Apostle Paul did at Ephesus. So he was there for three years, uh, and he planted a church in Ephesus, probably several churches. And he spent three years there pastoring, shepherding, training up leaders, building a strong church. And then after three years, he talked to his elders, and he said, I'm never going to see you again. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm probably going to be killed. So I want you men that I've trained up as elders to protect this church and watch out for false teachers and take care of the flock and I might see you no more. And, and God bless you in your ministry. And they loved Paul. They hugged big bear hug and they were crying on his neck and gave him a big squeeze and they sent him off. And that became the church of Ephesus and it began to thrive and be a, a, a fantastic church for a couple of, or many decades even. Uh, so that was the church of Ephesus. But it deals with generic truths, but two of the main truths that are the theme all throughout Ephesians that we're going to have the pleasure of studying is one of the main themes of Ephesians is it talks about what a church is to be, what a healthy church is supposed to be like, what a healthy church is supposed to do, and how a healthy church is supposed to be run. So we need to learn that lesson, don't we? So that's more on a corporate level, but also on an individual level, one of the main themes of Ephesians is it talks about these blessings and riches that every Christian has at their disposal because of their personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at those riches and blessings that are ours if you're a Christian this afternoon. So that leads us to point number two. The cause for our riches that the Apostle Paul is going to tell us about. We have great riches. We have countless spiritual riches. Why do we have these riches? Well, the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. It all begins and ends with Him, the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't it? Look at verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote 13 letters or epistles to different Christian congregations. And 13 out of 13 times he would say in his reading, grace to you. Grace. It's a biblical word with a very specific meaning. Grace means that God has given you something or blessed you something that you didn't deserve and that you did not earn. That is grace. Unmerited favor. God is a, a God of grace, isn't he? If you're a Christian, God has bestowed grace upon you. He's given grace to me. And that's why Paul always wanted to remind every Christian, every time he saw them, he was reminding them of where they were in Christ. Grace to you. And so what he was telling them is that God has graced you through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And God has graced you with countless blessings in your life that you need to be reminded of. That's how Paul greeted people. Grace and peace. God saved you by grace. He forgave you of your sins by grace. He's given you an inheritance all through grace. His unmerited favor. So that's the way Paul was saying hello to people. But what, how do we say hello to people today? Pretty mundane and shallow and superficial and meaningless, really. Hey, what's up? What, what does that mean? Hi, how you doing? Or hi, what does that mean? Hello, that doesn't mean anything. How are you feeling uh, with my hands? How, are you, how do you feel? 
And on and on it goes. So we have, yo, what, what does that mean? And here's the Apostle Paul, grace to you. So he would say hi to people or hello to people or he would greet people with deep spiritual meaning, reminding them of the graces they had been given from Christ. And he says, grace to you and peace. Bible says we are born sinners. Bible says we are born enemies of God. That's what the Bible says. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Enemies of God, naturally in and of ourselves until we get born again and get forgiven by Jesus. We are enemies of God. But when we do get saved, we have peace with God. So peace, as Paul says here, is a result or a byproduct of salvation. Peace is the byproduct of grace, God's grace. He saves us and then we have peace with Him. He saves us and then we are in His family. He is our Father. He loves us. So peace comes after grace. Peace follows grace. And grace is the fountain of all spiritual blessing and virtue that, that is ours. Everything that is good and comes from God, it comes because of grace. That's why I like the name of our church, Grace Bible Fellowship. As a matter of fact, that's why we chose the name. Let's always be reminded that everything comes from God. Grace. We don't deserve any of it, and we can't earn any of it. It is all by God's grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And this grace comes to us through Jesus Christ Himself. He is the cause for all of our riches. The person of Jesus Christ. Many times, all throughout history, since the church era began, since Christianity began, the skeptics and the agnostics and the critics and other religions have always posed the question, and actually it's a legitimate one, so what makes Christianity different from all these other religions? During 9-11, I had that question posed to me many times by people who weren't Christians. So why is Christianity greater than Islam? They, that was a sincere question. They did not know the answer, and they wanted to know the answer. I thought the answer was very easy. Why is Christianity greater than Islam? It comes down to who Jesus is. Who founded the, the religion of Christianity, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who founded Islam? Muhammad. Name any religion. Name any worldview that's not Christian. Name any belief that's not Christian. Go back to the origin of who founded it and who started it, and then start comparing them to the Lord Jesus Christ as he is described in the Bible, and there is no comparison. That's the difference. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord Jesus Christ? By the way, did you know Jesus is referred to or named over 60 times in Ephesians? Ephesians is all about Jesus. 60 times in different ways, different titles. This phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ, is used six times by Paul in this epistle. The Lord Jesus Christ. That means something very specific. Lord, that is the Old Testament word for God. It speaks of Jesus' authority. Jesus has the authority of God. Did you know that? He is sovereign. It speaks of Jesus' deity. That's the greatest revelation in the New Testament. That Jesus is not just a man. He is, in fact, the Yahweh God of the Old Testament. That causes a lot of people to stumble. They don't understand that. What do you mean Jesus is God and the Yahweh of the Old Testament? He is. He is the Lord. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ means. He is equal with God the Father in terms of His person and who He is. Then there's this, the other part of his name, the Lord Jesus. Jesus means Savior. That was his personal name that he went by all through his life. But it, it means he is the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. That speaks of why he came. That speaks of his mission. The Bible tells us Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to save people from their sins. And then the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the Old Testament word for Messiah, the Anointed One. And that refers to the fact that Jesus came to fulfill every prophecy made regarding the Messiah from the Old Testament. The Old Testament makes over 600 prophecies regarding this coming Messiah. 
And the Bible says that Jesus is the Messiah. He was the one that fulfills all these Old Testament prophecies. And He filled hundreds of them in His first coming, and He will fill, fulfill hundreds more at His second coming. But Messiah speaks of Jesus' office. So His name is loaded. The Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He is Savior. He is the one who fulfills all prophecy from the Old Testament. That is awesome. That is the one who gives us riches. That is the one who made riches possible for us. The Lord Jesus Christ. Another amazing thing about that name, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord speaks to, Jesus, it speaks to the fact that Jesus was God in a body. He was Almighty, Eternal God. And at the same time, Jesus refers to His humanity. So that's why we would say that Jesus was the God-man. He was 100% God and 100% man. And as a result, he could fully represent the Father accurately, but he could also fully represent sinful, weak humanity, and that made him a perfect Savior. That's why he could die for our sins and we could be forgiven by a holy God. He bridged the gap between a holy God and sinful humanity. The Lord Jesus Christ did. The Lord, he's God. Jesus, he's man. Christ, that speaks to the fact that he is our mediator. He's a go-between. Jesus is qualified to go between a holy God and sinful man because He is God and He became a man. So Jesus is the perfect mediator on our behalf. He bridged the gap for us and He accomplished salvation. He made salvation possible. That's what the Bible says Jesus came to do. He came to bring sinful people back to a holy God. That was His mission. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. That is the message of salvation. Jesus came down from heaven to become a man, to take sin upon Himself, to die on the cross as our substitute, to be our mediator, to bring us back to a holy God. That is Christianity. That is the Gospel. That was the mission of Jesus. It's inherent in His name. He bridged the gap for us. He made salvation possible. For me, that was 20 years ago in college when I had two crazy, kooky Christian roommates. And I wasn't a Christian. I didn't even know these guys. And I moved from across the country. And they're praying for my salvation and sharing the gospel with me and telling me about Jesus and telling me about the Bible and telling me things I've never heard before. And there were people that I didn't even know that were praying for me and my salvation for up to two years. People would share the gospel with me. In my freshman year in college, I came to know Jesus Christ personally. And I got saved. And I understood. And God changed my life. So that's when Jesus bridged the gap for me and brought me back to a holy God. That's what Jesus does. And the moment I became a Christian, I became a believer, what the Bible says, born again. Or I became redeemed. And that's when I got saved. Those are all synonymous. They all mean the same thing. That's when I became a Christian. And the favorite phrase of the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians to refer to a Christian is the Apostle Paul says that if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. You are in Christ. Look at the end of verse 1, Ephesians chapter 1. He writes this and he says, To the saints who are at Ephesus, and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. And then at the end of verse 5, in Christ. This phrase right here, in Christ, is used 25 times in Ephesians, just in the first three chapters. In Christ. If you're a Christian, you are in Christ. That means the moment you got saved, you were placed in the person of Christ. That He became your identity. You are adopted into His family. That means right now, if you're a Christian, God the Father looks down from heaven and He doesn't see a sinner from His perspective. From His perspective, He sees you in Christ because Christ died for you. Christ got punished for you. And you are enveloped in the identity of Jesus Christ. That is an awesome thought. Just look at chapter 1 alone. Uh, the end of verse 3. The Christian is in Christ. Look at the beginning of verse 4. 
Just as He chose us, God chose us in Him, in Christ. God the Father saved you. He chose you in Christ. Based on what Christ did, He chose you and saved you. That's what that means. Look at the end of verse 6. He bestowed on us in the Beloved, in Christ. God blessed you in Christ, is what it's saying. The beginning of verse 7. In Him, Christ, we have redemption. You have been freed spiritually in Christ. Look at the end of verse 9. In Him, referring to in Christ, the middle of verse 10. In Christ, the end of verse 10. In Him, and on and on it goes. Verse 12, in Christ. So that's, that is a Christian. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. You are identified with Christ. An exciting truth, Paul uh, says at the end of chapter 3, verse 17. Not only are we in Christ, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 17, that Christ is in us. Did you know that? The moment you became a Christian, if you were a Christian, God sent the Holy Spirit of Christ to live inside of you. So for 20 years now, I have had the Holy Spirit of Christ living literally inside of me. Christ is in me, and I am in Him. That is my true spiritual identity. I am secure in Christ. And as a result, everything that belongs to Christ belongs to me, if you're a Christian. That's what the Bible says. So that's why we have these riches at our disposal. It's because of our relationship in Christ. So if you have become a Christian, say it was five years ago, ten years ago, forty years ago, for that amount of time you have been in Christ. You are identified in Christ. Are we sinners? Yes. Are Christians sinful? Yes. Do they do stupid things? Yes. Do they need forgiveness? Yes. Do they struggle? Absolutely. I know I do. Do I need God's grace daily? Absolutely. And His mercy? That's on a human level. That's on a practical level. On a practical level, I have to work out my salvation. But from a positional level, from God's point of view, if you are a Christian, He sees you as in Christ, totally forgiven of all of your sins, past, present, and future. No matter what you've done. That is your position in Christ. So that's a theme that the Apostle Paul is going to use all throughout Ephesians, letting the Christian know and reminding them that they are in Christ. As the Father looks down and looks at you, He sees the perfection of Jesus Christ. Because did you know that Jesus lived 33 years of His life and He did it perfectly? He never sinned? Can you imagine? Perfect. So when Jesus, when God the Father looks at you, He sees perfection. He sees glory. He sees what pleases Him. That's if you're a Christian. Because when you became a Christian, you are now in Christ. Now, in light of that great truth, Christians really shouldn't have a self-esteem problem. But that's our humanism. That is the temptation of our flesh. Because we want to be introverted and introverted and look at ourselves and evaluate ourselves and look at our weaknesses and look at our sin. And we are sometimes overwhelmed with guilt that weighs us down. And guilt is real. And sin in our life is real. And we need to be honest in evaluating ourselves. That's not what I'm talking about. But in terms of our identity and who we are and what God thinks of us, we need to remember that if you are a Christian, you are in Christ, secure in Him. And we need to be honest too. There's nothing good in and of ourselves. Because when I look at myself, on the inside, all I do is see is sin. And the Apostle Paul said the same thing in Romans 7. When he evaluated his own heart and some of the things that he did, he was disgusted with himself. This was the Apostle Paul. And he said, O wretched man that I am. Because the Apostle Paul knew, even though he was a Christian, sin still lived inside of him. And it weighed him down and actually disgusted him. But then he rejoiced and said, But I know Jesus Christ personally and that I know from God's perspective, not the human perspective, from God's perspective, I am in Christ totally forgiven of all of my sin. 
Praise be to God. And that could be the perspective of every Christian, no matter what's going on in your life, no matter what battle with sin you might have in your life, or some sinful habit, or something that keeps rearing its ugly head time and time again, or when you're confronted by sin in your own life along the way, deal with your sin, confess your sin, but be reminded that if you are a Christian, you've been forgiven of your sin because you are in Christ. And you can rejoice in that. And someday you're going to find the fulfillment of it in heaven when sin bogs you down no more. When you get to heaven, sin won't be living in you anymore. And not only, and you won't be in Christ, you will be with Christ and in His presence for all eternity. And that's the great hope of the Christian. And that gives us great encouragement to live from day to day as sinful, weak people. So the cause for all of our great riches, it comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the dispenser of all good gifts. Well, what are these riches? Well, let's go on to number three, the content of our riches. Well, what are these riches? Verse three. Paul tells us, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. So the content of our riches. Three things I want to say regarding the content. What are these riches? Well, the whole book is loaded with telling us about the riches, so we'll learn more and more as we go. But he mentions a couple of specific ones. Before I get to that, first thing I want you to note is he says, if you're a Christian, he has blessed, has blessed us. Did you know that if you're a Christian, you've already been blessed by God? So if you're a Christian, you don't need to be praying, God, please bless me. God has already blessed you. If you're a Christian, God has blessed me. It's a past work. He already did it. But Paul says, thank God, the Father, who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We've already been blessed with every spiritual blessing. In eternity past, and, and from the moment we got saved. So I've been blessed with spiritual blessings for 20 years, because I've been a Christian for 20 years. So we need to be reminded of that. The blessing, it's past tense. You've already been blessed as a Christian. Why well, do I have any blessings? Well, then you need to study the book of Ephesians to find out how you are blessed and what your blessings are, and how to appropriate and apply your blessings to your life. That's why God gave us the book of Ephesians. So the first thing to remember is we've already been blessed if you're a Christian. And if you're not a Christian and you don't know Jesus personally, you have not been blessed this way spiritually. You have to come to know Jesus Christ personally to be blessed in this way that he's talking about. So we've already been blessed. The Christian has. Well, in what way? Well, he says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. That is amazing. I want to emphasize the word there, every. Every blessing. We've been given every blessing that God intended to give us when we got saved. At the moment of salvation, God gave us every blessing. In other words, spiritually speaking, every Christian here is sufficient spiritually. You have the resources that you need. I have all the resources I need to grow and mature as an obedient, healthy, serving Christian from God's point of view. Because He has given us every spiritual blessing. And you know what? Every Christian has been given every spiritual blessing. There aren't the haves and the have-nots, or Christians and then the super saints. Every Christian has been given every spiritual blessing. Well, what are these blessings? Well, he says they are spiritual blessings. That means they're supernatural in origin. They come first and foremost from a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ when you got saved. They're heavenly in origin. He says they're in the heavenlies. In other words, God is the author, the originator, the dispenser of these gifts that He wants to give to the Christian. And He is the guardian of these gifts. 
So that's what it means with spiritual blessings. These are not material blessings. There are some who call themselves Christians who do try to teach that the Bible says if you're a Christian and if you love God, then you'll have all kinds of material blessings and you'll be rich and have everything you ever want. That is not true. We know that's not true because Jesus didn't have anything. Sometimes he didn't have a place to lay his head. He didn't even have a home. Jesus was not rich. He didn't have pockets in his robe. So the Bible isn't emphasizing material blessing necessarily. There are plenty of Christians all over the world today who are very poor. Poverty stricken, literally. But they are rich from a spiritual point of view. Because Paul reminds us, if you're a Christian, you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So they're spiritual blessings. Uh, spiritual also emphasizes that they're not temporal. These, these gifts will last. They are lasting. They are eternal. They don't fade away. The fact that they are spiritual blessings also talks about the emphasis. They are future-oriented, these gifts. Now we will get and obtain some of these gifts right now in this life, but some of the spiritual gifts that we will receive, we won't know or experience to fruition until the next life, until we get to heaven. But many of them are at our disposal right now. And we need to learn to appropriate. I just want to give you a couple of examples of spiritual gifts that we've been given. Number one, one gift that God has given us is salvation. We're going to talk about that next week, verses 4 through 14. That's the greatest gift, isn't it, for a sinner? Forgiveness of sin and relationship with God. That's the greatest spiritual gift or blessing we have been given. Another spiritual gift we've been given, or spiritual blessing, chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul calls uh, the people at Ephesus, he calls them saints. There's a lot of confusion regarding that term. Did you know that today, if you're a Christian, you are a saint? So, use the word saint and use your name. Saint Clifford. I like the sound of that. Saint whatever. Saint Carissa. Saint Nico. Saint Jake. Saint... No, 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 Some people will say, well, you're crazy. No. The New Testament word for saint simply means holy one. One who has been set apart by God in a special way. He's been set apart for a special purpose by God. So a holy one was just a synonym for somebody who would become a Christian. Well, there is confusion on that. Because some religions and some people would teach that in order to become a saint, you have to be a real super Christian in this life and do the best that you can. And then hopefully in the next life, after you die, after about five to seven years, a whole bunch of people will look back in your life and try to find miracles that you did in your life and find out how wonderful and great Christian you are. And then they'll all take a vote and say, uh, is this person worth being a saint or not? They'll vote on you after you're dead. And then you have to go through another process. And then eventually you can become canonized a hundred years later as hopefully making it to sainthood. And actually, some people will start praying to you when you get to heaven. Throughout Christian history, unfortunately, that's what many people thought a saint was. And then eventually your, your figure is turned into some kind of plaster statue. Or you're plastered on a glass, stained glass window. But that's not what a saint is. In the New Testament, a saint is simply a reference to somebody who has been made holy. That's what the word means. Those who are made holy. And if you're a Christian, you're made holy at the moment of your salvation. So I became a saint, Saint Clifford at age 19. And you became a saint the moment you got saved. You were made holy by God. Forgiven of all of your sins because of your faith in Jesus Christ. We are holy ones. That's what a saint means. Did you know one of the main reasons you are a saint or a holy person if you're a Christian? One of the main reasons you are a, a saint or a holy person is because the moment you became a Christian, God literally put the Holy Spirit inside of you. So I am literally a vessel of the Holy Spirit. I carry the Holy Spirit around in me. That makes me a saint. I am a holy one. I am set apart for God to do His bidding to serve Him. That is a great truth. Understand that we 
are saints. One more spiritual blessing. Uh, grace is a spiritual blessing. The gift of prayer is a spiritual blessing. Every Christian has been given the gift of prayer. Uh, spiritual gifts, the ability to serve supernaturally in the church and abroad, are spiritual, is another spiritual blessing. The Word of God is a spiritual blessing, isn't it? The ability to understand the Word of God and apply it to your life is a spiritual blessing. And on and on it goes. Those are the spiritual blessings. They are countless. They are at our disposal. The Apostle Paul is going to remind us of those as we go through the study together so that we can first know what they are and then apply them to our life and also appropriate them and apply them to our church as a body. And if we do that in obedience to God and keeping with His will, His hand of blessing is going to be on us as a local church and He is going to help us grow and mature in accordance with His good pleasure and will. And so we need to trust Him for that. So Christian, be reminded today, don't be down in the dumps if you're a Christian. Be reminded that you are rich in Christ. And most importantly, remember why you are rich in Christ. It was because of what Jesus did on your behalf and what He did on my behalf. He took the sin of the world upon Himself, nailed it to a cross, died, and rose again from the dead victoriously so that we could have life in Him. And we thank Him and amen to that. Right now, if you could bow your heads with me and pray, we're going to thank God for what He's done on our behalf, how He has made salvation available to every human being that He ever made in His image. We need to thank Him for the riches He's put at our disposal. God, we thank You so much for Your love, for Your grace for us. We thank You for the greatest gift, which is Jesus Christ Himself. As a person who willingly came down from heaven, He came to the earth that He created. He took on a human body, lived the perfect life sinlessly, willingly got punished by You, Father, for our sin as our substitute, died, rose again victoriously. We thank You for that. And that assures our victory. That assures our forgiveness of sin. Ascended back into heaven. And the Lord Jesus reigns on high today and is even in this place. And we have the privilege of worshiping Him today. And God, thank You for all the other riches You've given us as well. To You be the glory, Father. To the Lord Jesus be the glory. And right now, God, if there is anybody in this place who hasn't experienced personally a relationship with Jesus Christ, they don't know what it means to be in Him, to be work on their hearts, soften their heart, open them through your Holy Spirit, and draw them to you that they might be saved. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.